0: jump into one of the most important topics. So it's all good, but if you're going to help anybody truly change, and if you're going to come alongside of someone to help them get a hold of, why do I do what I do? Then it will never be enough to just say, oh, stop that and do more of this. The Bible is not put together that way. There's plenty of stop and start, but if you read the Bible, how much of it? All of it. You will see God is all about replacement, not just stopping, and heart, 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 heart. Because God intended to actually really help us change. And the only person that ever truly changes long term is the person who has begun to be able to be aware of and see, the, I call it this way, the sin beneath the sin. Oh, you're getting angry. Okay. But Why? Oh, you're anxious. Okay. There's verses about that, but why? So biblical counseling, please know, it is not, oh, you're angry? Here's a don't be angry verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4.26. Memorize that. Let me know how you do in a few weeks. I'll let you know how they do. They don't do well. Now I'm angry and guilty because I have a don't be angry verse. But I'm still angry. And I'm a fan of scripture memory, so don't hear me saying there's nothing to that. But if you don't help them get to the heart they will not be able to truly change every person that gets angry does not get angry for the same reason so i'm working with a man right now and that's his deal he's got a short fuse and he's done it his whole life but i'm trying to help him get to through listening to him well and hearing his story what kind of habits he's formed how because here's the thing about us We are unlike golden retrievers and aardvarks and houseplants because we're created in the image of God, which means we're interpreters. We're constantly trying to make sense of what's happening. How can I make sense of this? How can I make sense of this? We connect dots. Problem? Sometimes we connect them in really poor ways. It makes sense to us what we've done, but it's not biblical. But based on how you've been interpreting life and what you've been saying to yourself, from that will be a set of feelings that begin to build. And based on those feelings, you will begin to take action or pull back and not act, which is still a choice in an action. And if you do it long enough down the same path, it can kind of get rooted in you as a character. And that's how people will say, it was just who I am. Good news for people who say, that's just who I am. I'm just an angry man, or I'm just a warrior. My mama was a warrior. Grandmother was a warrior. I come from a great heritage of warriors. We do it right. You know, that could be your family and that could be your heritage. But good news, by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, you can be that one that turns away from what your family has been doing over and over and over. Now, will it be easy? Oh, no. Will it take some effort? Yes. But here's what I find. People who begin to fight but are not fighting smart on the right level, lose heart and say, okay, it doesn't work. If you just try to say, I'm not gonna get angry today, I'm not gonna get angry today, I am not going to get angry today i want So it's heart level, heart level, heart level. What is the sin beneath the sin? And the reason I'm so passionate about this, folks, is this is personal. This was the breakthrough for me. I grew up in the church. I was saved when I was seven. I was a part of good Bible teaching churches And I still wondered why, why is it so hard for me to change? Why do I feel so stuck? Why do I still do what I don't want to do and still struggle to do what I think I should do based on God's word? And it wasn't until a biblical counselor helped me to see, oh, what is going on in Brad Bigney's heart that it's my heart. So you might think, well, you'd know what's going on in your heart. Actually, no. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? Good news. Verse 10, but I, the Lord, search the heart. He'll show you your heart, and often he chooses to use other people to help us see what we're not seeing. So if this is, I'm just going to be able to scratch the surface here today. This is actually, so I'm going to go ahead and. Big disclaimer up front, I won't get through all the material because this is really a two-hour workshop that they've said, hey, see if you can do this in 60 minutes as if Brad can make anything shorter. (laughs) So it's great stuff. If this excites you, and I hope it will, then you can go to my website, not the church website. It's just easier to find things on mine, bradbigney.com. What I'm going to try to share with you is actually lifted from 12 messages about the heart. And so if you want to dig into this some more, there's 12 messages. And it's a series just called Gospel Treason. And you can get on there and you can download them. In fact, if you go to the site, you can get a study guide, a free study guide that goes along with the book for discussion if you wanted to use it for yourself. You can get the handouts that I talk about. They're right there. You can print them out. And so you can get a lot of good stuff on this subject. There's videos of sermons that match this and audio If you want to help people, starting with yourself, I would encourage you to get a better understanding of this. Spend some extra time with this. All right, let's jump in and see what we can do in this hour. What are we really talking about when we talk about idols of the heart? Well, people by nature are worshipers. People are worshiping all around us every day. Tomorrow... I know that's a big day for most Christians that will go to church. It's really not, oh, there's those that worship and get in their cars and get up in time to go to a church. And others are just drinking coffee or playing golf or sitting on their patio and they don't worship. Not true. Everyone's a worshiper. By nature, we are hardwired for worship. We want to make much of something. We want to build our worlds around something. We want there to be something that is the thing that gives us purpose and motive and reason. The question is what you're building your world around. So the question is what or whom are you worshiping? So, so why is this a big deal? Let's dig into it a little bit. Why is it a big deal? Well, David Pallison, there's another name. I think I mentioned it the first weekend. Some of my favorite writers and biblical counselors are Paul Tripp. I told you if you're just going to get one book, get his instruments in the Redeemer's hand. But another one, he's a great writer, insightful, and he is the guy that pioneered this whole concept of idols of the heart. I mean, God put it in the Bible, but sometimes God uses people to just understand it and see it. He's that guy. Great stuff by Dave Pallison. Like, he has a brand new book on suffering, and it's little, that I just finished that I think is one of the best I've ever read. And I gave it to Vicky with what's going on with her right now. She said, oh, my goodness, honey, that was so good. Check out some of David Pallison's stuff. He says this idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. The relevance of massive chunks of scripture hangs on our understanding of idolatry. I don't think he's overstated the case. When you look at the scope and sweep of scriptures, both Old and New Testament, You see that the first duty of every believer is to say yes to God. Every human being say yes to God. And second, it's not enough to just say yes to God if you're not equally recognizing and identifying, what do I need to say no to? What are those other things that draw my heart away and siphon me off and distract me? So let's get a a working definition of idolatry. I don't have a Bible verse for this, but just reading the scriptures old and new I put this together, and I think it's fairly accurate, this. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. In other words, it's living on substitutes. It's exchanging the one true living God for a counterfeit. Something in this world, and it might be good, like marriage or kids or grandkids, or the satisfaction of hard work or pleasure or food or whatever. None of that's sinful, but none of it was meant to truly fill you and satisfy you and be your reason for living, so it, it's counterfeit, and it'll leave you frustrated, so it can be anything or any one that begins to capture your hearts and minds and affections more than God. Now, if you're thinking, oh, idolatry, it's all in the Old Testament. No, it's not. It's not all in the Old Testament. Consider this one New Testament verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And here's what I think is interesting. This is the apostle John that's called the apostle of love. He's the one that was very close to Jesus and would often be lying on his chest at mealtime. And He's just written... This little letter, we're talking about 1 John, not the Gospel of John. He's just written this little letter that is 105 verses about the importance of an intimate, vital, love relationship with Jesus Christ. And to be walking in the light and truly know Him. And then he concludes his letter with this. I think it's always noteworthy how people conclude things. And what, what's the last, just like I pointed out last night, Jesus' final sermon being in the upper room washing their feet. John chooses to close out his letter with this admonition Little children, keep yourselves. So it's not just go hard after your Savior in order to do that, oh, be vigilantly keeping yourself from. In other words, the question becomes this. Has something or someone else besides Jesus Christ taken hold of the title deed of your heart? Is there something or something, someone else that holds your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight? From the standpoint of the Bible, the motivation question becomes the lordship question. What motivates you? What moves you? What drives you? What keeps you going? What do you live for? You can say all day long, Oh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Good. Right answer. But what does your life look like? That's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, looked at the crowd and said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do the things ...that I command. Your, your heart isn't there. Your mouth's got it, but your heart isn't there. And so it's really a motivation question. Where's my heart? What has captured my heart? What have I built my world around? What is it that I truly worship? Now, some of, the Bible, obviously, is my first place to point you. Become familiar with this theme. So, yes, the Bible has some big themes... And here's why I also am a big proponent of reading all the Bible. If you just dig into it constantly, and I'm a fan of that also, please know. There's things that you can see, but there's something about stepping back and getting the big picture on a regular basis. You don't have to do it every year like I choose to do. But at least every two, three, four years, listen, read the whole Bible. Because there are themes, and very often... Some of what we need to know that changes how we live is to have big themes framed up in our lives. Not all just specifics, but big themes. You'll see a theme of redemption. You'll see a theme of the the sovereignty of God. And I believe you'll see this theme of idolatry and our hearts that constantly try to exchange the glory of God for something created in this world. So Bible first, but then let me highlight a couple of good resources in our resource center that you might want to grab. Ed Welch's little booklet, Motives, is excellent. It's what it's all about, Idols of the Heart. Why do I do what I do? This is what I use in counseling. So I don't use my book, Gospel Treason. I don't use books in counseling. But here's what I do with books. I read books. You should, I hope this might sound silly, but you should know more than your counselee about the subject you're talking about. That's usually helpful. So read books about some of this important stuff. Use booklets as you try to help them. Most people, they've come to you because they're hurting. They've come to you because they're stuck. They've come to you because life has gotten complicated. They're probably not going to read a book. So you want them reading their Bibles? And booklets are wonderful. Here's the booklet that I use. Motives. Why do I do? I'll assign chapters from my book. I have a whole chapter about how does my idolatry impact my relationships. How does I got another whole chapter. How does my idolatry screw up my identity? Ooh, that's huge, identity. All kinds of specifics that I might based on what they're struggling with assign a chapter. Paul Tripp, Lost in the Middle. Oh my goodness, this is one of my favorite Paul Tripp books. Now, don't be put off. It's about a midlife crisis, right? So when I bought it when it was new, I said, "Okay," and I put it on the shelf and I said, "Yeah, when I have one of those, I'll read that. And a lady in our church, I was preaching and teaching on Idols of the Heart. She emailed me and said, Oh, Pastor Brad, I know you love to read books. She said, Paul Tripp's book, Lost in the Middle, is about idolatry. And I grabbed it and took it with me on a trip and read it that weekend. And oh, Because think about it. What is a midlife crisis? All of a sudden, I'm 55. Well, that would be me. And... My body isn't what it used to be. I've got pains and aches. I got things I can't do. Maybe at work I'm starting to be displaced. I'm not the latest, greatest flavor. Young people are being hired, being paid half what they pay me, and they do it faster. And they're at a computer screen with things spinning around, and I'm still sitting there saying, I'll get there. I can do this. This is how I've always done it. And it's hard. And so men do stupid things like buy a sports car and divorce their wife and marry someone half their age and try to get the hair on their neck to grow on their head or the hair in their ears to grow on their head or the hair in their nose to grow on their head. I got hair everywhere but where I want it. It's just painful what happens as you age. It's like, why does that happen? It's like, And so if, you, if your identity was your job, It's great to be a hard worker and it's great to do whatever you do. The Bible said, whatever you do, do it with excellence. But it does not say, whatever you do, let your identity become consumed by that so that you and what you do are the same. Tragic. So you see it often regarding career, and that can be with men or women today. But you see it also with children, with ladies. That's what's going. So here we've got a midlife crisis And then we've got this term that our world has. Empty nest syndrome. What is that really? It's really. Sorry ladies. It's not an indication that you were such a great mom. It's an indication that you lost your identity. In the midst of being a mother. And now you don't know who you are. Or what to do. And it's devastating. Don't hear me saying it's not. Sad. Our last one just went to college. So I'm mildly sad. There's a, there's a little bit of sadness. I feel it right over here, I think. But oh my goodness, we've been raising kids forever. Right? I mean, I've wanted to run naked through the house forever. It's never appropriate. It's never a good time. And finally, I'm like, now? Now? Can I go now? And we still got it. But what's so funny is when you've got kids in their 20s, they could arrive at any moment. So it's never okay. It's still But he could come in. So I set the alarm simply safe. And I lock all the doors. So at least if they come in, it'll go. They have to go to that code and code it in. And that'll give me time to settle down. It's like, you know, in a woman's mind, it's still never okay. Even if they all live in other states, we don't know. They could helicopter in at any moment. That's how women think. (laughs) And I'm like, it's going to be fine. It's like, ugh. So, you know, it can be awkward sometimes as we walk around the neighborhood and we've lived there 23 years and people are like, oh, they know us. They know all the kids. There's ropes in this tree and pulleys and boards and cushions from our van. And and they're like, oh, isn't that sad? And then we're both just like, eh. even praise God, Vicky is like, uh, not really. See, if you still love each other, it ushers you into a glorious new season of Oh, my goodness, we can see each other more. We can drive to Madison, Indiana alone and eat at the delicatessen that we want to eat at and not hear complaints that they want different food. We can bike as long as we want to. And I'm saying, I'm tired. And, oh, my goodness, just, oh, hallelujah. So, lost in the middle. Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. This is a great one. Now, he focuses, because he's in Manhattan or was for all those years, he focuses on money, power, and sex regarding those being the go-to, this was what I'll build my life around. But it is a great, great book. Any idol, get this, will become a snare in your life. Anything that you build your life around and your sense of being and purpose and direction Other than God will ultimately become a snare. We go to it and we build our life around the kids or the career or image or pleasure or whatever because we think it will serve us. We don't go there to get snared. We don't go there to get shattered. We don't go there to get disappointed. But that's human heart is so deceitful. That's how it ends. The very thing that you think will serve you ends up ensnaring you and ultimately destroying you. Any idol will ultimately cuz here's what it does. Any idol will ultimately hinder your walk with the Lord. This is going to get in the way of your walk with the Lord. That's what we're going to see in a little later in Ezekiel chapter 14. I'm going to show you some more. But look at 14:5. They this is God speaking. They are all estranged from me by their idols. You can buy a new study Bible, you can get colored pencils, you can buy new worship CDs, you can do any number of things to get a spark back. But if you actually are clinging to some other things and have built your world around some other things, you will feel distant from God. He says, they're estranged from me. You feel like a stranger with God because he won't share his glory with another You want intimacy with God. You have to seek God. Think about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek God and His kingdom first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. You'll be estranged from God. Any idol... Oh, it it gets worse. Not only will you feel estranged, any idol will ultimately block the grace of God in your life. Now, I don't know about you... But I hope you understand this marvelous term grace is saving grace that began our new life and relationship with God. But it's not like you're done with that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And now my life is all about me just trying to do this Christian thing. Oh, no. It's saving grace and enabling, empowering grace. I need God's grace from start to finish. So I don't want to do anything that cuts me off from grace and Jonah 2 8 is a sobering verse those who cling to worthless idols now don't make a mistake and think so there's some that are good no he's calling them all worthless those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs that really grips me I hope it grips you I'll say to my counselees sometimes, here's what it means, here's what it looks like. God is coming to you with grace that has your name on it, but, oh, sees you, but, oh, life has to look like this. My marriage has to be like this. My, ha, ha, ha. You can either have God's grace, or you can have you trying to work life the way you think it ought to be, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So as I counsel, no matter what the issue was that brought them in, no matter what the presenting problem is, I'm also always looking for and vigilant, and I might add, in my own life, continually, I'm wanting to be vigilant in my personal time with the Lord. Show me God, make me aware of these three things. Pride, bitterness, idolatry. Because I see those three things in the scripture as being grace blockers. That's how I'd put it. The are grace blockers. I don't want anything blocking the grace of God. It's like your dryer vent. I don't know if you know this, but it's got to be clear. It can't have a wad of lint. It can't have a dead bird. It can't have a bird nest. I say that because ours did. And so we have this brand new dryer, and we're running it and running it and running it and running it and running it. And running it. we're paying for electric, you know? And she's like, this is pathetic. I have to run it a second time and they're still soaking wet. We call some company to come. Oh, that little silver hose thing, pretty important. And it goes up into our ceiling and it goes across the ceiling. It goes out the back side of the house. And a bird had gone in there and died. And that dryer wasn't getting air. It's got to have air. It doesn't matter the heating element. It doesn't matter that you bought one of the best. It won't dry without air Guess what? You can't do the Christian life without grace. We need grace like a runner takes in carbs before a marathon. You cannot do the Christian life in your own strength. So you don't want to do anything that cuts you off from grace. Pride. God does what to the proud? Resist the proud. But he gives to who? Humble. Bitterness. Hebrews 12. Look out amongst yourself. Lest there be any root of bitterness springing up that causes trouble, defiles many, and you fall short of the grace of God. And Jonah 2.8 we looked at. So I'm always wanting to know, is there something I'm building my world around and clinging to more than God? Then I'm not going to get grace. Is pride at play here? I'm not going to get God. Have I become bitter? I'm not going to. I'm not going to get God's grace. To receive God's grace, your hands need to be empty. And what I've learned about myself and those that I try to help is what is most often in our hand is something else in this world. And here's what's tricky for Christians. Even good things. And that's why we don't see it and think, well, what's wrong with that? All I want is to have a marriage like that last sermon series was talking about. What's wrong with that? All I want is to have godly children and, and I want to be the best mother in the world. What's wrong with that? All I want is to be a hard worker and to be recognized. All I want, all I want, all I want. Because you can want even good things too much. God is, in fact, committed to frustrating us to the point that you will be forced to drop those idols And turn to him with open hands and open heart. So, this is something we have to be continually vigilant about, aware of. So, again, don't think in terms of just like pride. I never want to talk in terms of, oh, make sure you kill pride. Kill it. No, no. The way I would word it is make sure you are killing pride. Be killing pride. It just shows up like a chameleon in all kinds of multicolored ways. Be alert to it. This is how I would talk to you about idolatry. You're not going to say, oh, I went to that conference in in 2018. I heard about idols of the heart and I killed mine. Hallelujah. I've moved on to spiritual gifts and end time charts. No. I hope after this you'll say, oh my goodness, what are my top idols what's my propensity what is my greatest tendency where do i tend to go when i don't go to my savior once you're aware of it stay aware of it for a lifetime just stay aware of it and be quick to move in and start to repent as soon as you sense it and see it but to be aware of it you got to see it for the first time sometimes we're just not even seeing it jeremiah think about this This is basically the same concept. So this is all through the scriptures. That we're going somewhere else for satisfaction. And it's really treason against God. That's why I titled my book, Gospel Treason. We're turning away from where we should be to something else. This is God speaking not to pagans, but to his people. He says this, My people have committed two great sins. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cisterns. What kind of cisterns? Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here's what you got to get in your mind, and you've got to help your counselees to understand. Everything, and and I hit this pretty hard last night, everything in this world is broken. So marriage is a good gift. But it leaks. It's one of those broken cisterns. It was never meant to fully satisfy. You will, you will not always find all the water you need there that will fully quench you. You've got to be going to your Savior. So marriage leaks. Children leak. When they're young, it's very obvious. But as they get older, they still leak. They leak in new ways that sometimes are even more painful. Every workplace situation leaks. And so when you just think, I just got to get... Here's what just kills me when I hear people say, Oh, I wish I could just work with all Christians. Oh, my goodness. Please. I do. And and I love them. But there's a special level of grief in those situations. Yes, the F word, the F bomb ain't being dropped around here. Hallelujah. But you know what is happening? It's almost more painful sometimes because you're like, Dang, everybody here knows Jesus. Why would you have just done that? Why did that still happen to me? What is going on? How could you, when you go into the marketplace, you're like, yeah, all right, it's dark. They're pagans. F-bomb. I'm going to get hurt. Someone's going to do me wrong. And you come into a Christian environment like Answers in Genesis. Or Grace Fellowship. I want to work for Answers in Genesis. Let me know how that goes. And I'm not against Answers in Genesis. But I believe there's still sinners working there. And I think we've got people from all over the nation flying in. Just thinking, if just I could work for Answers in Genesis. Oh, it would be Nirvana. I'm sure we just sing Kumbaya as we start our day. And then we just bless each other. No, I think there's some problems. And there's some problems here. It's like my my take on Christians is they're like manure. If you spread them around, they do a lot of good. If you pile it up all in one place, it stinks. So you you really have to be careful. It's at church and answers in Genesis that sometimes you think, what is that smell? Too many Christians in one place. That's what it, fertilizer was meant to spread around, not pile up in one place. And I've continued to hope that maybe that. Screen, would come back Is there something I did wrong all right number two you got the notes though we're going to Roman number two where do idols come from so how did this happen well I hope you understand it's not an outside job like somebody did this to me oh it's an inside job it's an inside job we do it to ourselves so let's talk about where they come from how do we get in trouble well, Ezekiel chapter 14, if you just wanted to know two passages that are my go-to passages that I think frame up this concept of idolatry, in the Old Testament, it's Ezekiel 14, 1-8. In the New Testament, is James 4, 1-3. to And there's lots of other good stuff about it, but those are my two passages that I think really inform us in significant, helpful ways. Ezekiel chapter 14, listen to some of what this says. Son of man... This is God talking to Ezekiel. These men have set up their idols. Where? So this is Old Testament, and he's still not talking about an outward bronze Buddha or a wooden totem pole or something. It, right here. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart I, the Lord, will answer him according to, oh, look at this phrase, according to the multitude of his idols. Don't think in terms of, well, I, I want to think about what, what, what idol do I have? Thank you, Brian. It's probably not that way. What idols? They run in herds. They go together. I will answer them according to the multitude of their Idols. So here's how I would say it to you. Idols ultimately blind you and bind you. Did you notice he said these idols that they've set up in their heart cause them to what? Stumble into iniquity. So in other words, here's what happens. When there's something you want more than pleasing God when there's something you're going to for satisfaction more than your relationship with Jesus, it will cause you to sin in other ways to get it. It will cause you to relate to other people in less than helpful ways because I so want this. This is what I live for. If you get in my way, watch out. And so we stumble into iniquity. That's why it doesn't work as you're counseling someone to just keep saying, but don't raise your voice with your wife. Don't use anger. Don't use profanity. You can do that all day long with a counselee and not see a lot of progress. Until you say, what is it you're wanting? What is it you've built your world around? What is it that you're saying to yourself, oh, I must have, or oh, it should be like? Until that is addressed and dethroned and you repent on a heart level guess what anger is simply a response to what you're not getting so they blind you and cause you to stumble into other sins James chapter 1 talks this way but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So in the Old Testament, most often the way this is talked about with straight, is straight up with the word idols. In the New Testament, look for the word lust or desires. And unfortunately, in our culture, when I say the word lust, we all just think sexual sins. That's not what the Bible meant. The word lust in Greek is simply the word epithumia. And whenever they put epi in front of a word, it's a prefix that heightened it. So epithumia is any desire that's strong enough that it motivates behavior. This is now why I do what I do and want what I want and say what I say and stick with it as long as I stick with it, despite the impact on everyone around me. And often what you see also is that pressure around us in life, whether it's job pressures or health pressures or kid pressures or... Or disappointments or shattered dreams or whatever it is can often be an occasion we should flee to our Savior as a refuge. But too often that's when we turn to something other than him for refuge. That's why I think it's interesting. There's a, there's a go-to verse in the Bible that most Christians are aware of if you grew up in a good church. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Very few know what 14 says. But it's interesting, 1 Corinthians 13 saying there's no temptation that's overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear up under it. What's verse 14 say? Therefore, my beloved, flee from He's not changing subjects. Sometimes we read our Bibles that way. Oh, he moved on from temptation to idolatry. The word therefore always indicates what I'm saying now is in light of what I just said. So in light of how we're so tempted to be drawn away to wrong places, flee idolatry. Don't go to something other than your Savior, even if it's a good thing. Like my marriage or my children or my best friend... For refuge, flee from... Or sometimes it can be hobby or work and work becomes, you know, workaholic. That's where I lose myself in my work. I could lose myself in pleasure. I could lose myself on the internet with some game that I'm playing with someone in London and I'm on level six and I'm really good. But I got lots of stuff I'm really not getting done that I should be getting done. John Calvin said this, The heart is a factory of idols. It just belches them out. I mean, just as fast as you can try to address it, the heart is a factory of idols. So, really important question then. How would you spot an idol in your own life? How would you help someone else to see it? Let's talk about that some. How do you spot an idol in your life? your own life. Well, here's my first suggestion. Follow the trail of your time, money, and affections. Follow the trail. What you're going to see is that very often, the best way to go about identifying idolatry is to start out here with what you do see, facts, and then trace it back to the heart. Trace. Now, you can't see the heart. So when you just start there and say, I, I, I want to see my heart, that can be very difficult. You can pray. Psalm 139 verse 23 and 24 is a great prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. But beyond that prayer, your best way to go about this is start out here with evidence, emotions that are out of control, or time, money, and affections, and trace it back and see what it tells you about you. In other words, where you have an idol, you will sacrifice for it. And here's where I want you to be careful. I'm going to tick off a list of things that, sure, you could say, oh, I sacrificed for my children. I just made a sacrifice. I guess they're an idol. That's not what this means. Should you sacrifice for your kids? Yes, every good parent has a measure of sacrifice. The question is to what extent, and if you see a cluster of these things I'm about to show you, all surrounding something, More than it should. You're going to sacrifice for it. You'll spend time on it. You'll spend money on it. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You'll talk about it out of the abundance. We can't see the heart. but We can hear what you're saying. And your words are attached to your heart. We're learning something. So that's why in counseling, do not do all the talking. Let them talk. Why? You're seeing their heart. That's all you got to go on. You you want to see their heart? Ask good questions and then don't interrupt. Let them talk. Let them talk. Because as they get comfortable, they really start to say what they actually believe. And then you can say, ah! Not quite like that. You keep looking kind and hopeful, but you're writing things down and you're like, gotcha. And that's what Stuart Scott did to me. He read back to me things that I had been saying for three weeks. And I remember when he brought it thinking, oh my word, I can't believe you did this to me. I trusted you. I was talking. I was trying to help you know what she needs to do. Don't talk. But he had me. It, and it sounds so bad when someone else shows you what you're saying. You just don't think about it when you're talking. It was like, Brad, you keep saying this. And you've said this multiple times. And you, you, like. And then he was kind. He said, I want you to consider that I think you might have two or three significant heart idols. That was a turning point in my life. Not just in our counseling. My life. You'll talk about it. You'll serve it. You'll protect it and defend it. You'll think about it. You'll worry about it. You'll build your schedule around it. You'll perfect it. I mean, it's one thing to say, I want to be a good mom. But it's another thing to think, I have to be mom of the universe. Eh. I want to be a hard worker. No, I want to be the man of the year or the woman of the year. It's a question of extent. You'll get angry if someone blocks you from it. So often emotions can be signals like a dashboard on your car when you have that check engine light that comes on. The answer isn't smash the light. Well, that's troublesome. I don't want to see that while I'm driving. Wisdom would say, what's behind that? That's indicating something. You keep getting angry. You keep feeling fearful. You're very anxious surrounding this subject. What's going on? What's going on? It's an opportunity to trace back to your heart. You'll experience intense fear or anxiety if that thing or person is threatened in any way. And you'll fall into despair or depression if you fail to achieve it. See, idolatry is not so much wanting the wrong thing. It can be even wanting good things too much. Even wanting good things too much. The Puritans referred to this as having an inordinate desire. They called them inordinate desires. The desire itself could be good. It's inordinate. It's too much. It's just too much. Romans chapter one is another go-to passage. So really, I probably should say, Ezekiel 14:1 to8, Romans one. Oh, maybe 21 to 26. And then James 4, 1 to 3. This is a great passage also that really gives us an x-ray of the human heart. What is going on? Why do people do what they do? Look at what it says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. Now watch what the human heart does next. They exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man. Something created in this world. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And then verse 26 goes on to give us an example. Here's the sad thing for me about this passage in Romans 1. Most Christians, the only time they go here is to prove that homosexuality is a sin. And please know, I agree, it's a sin. But I don't think Paul's main intent of this passage was to get us all stirred up about homosexuality being a sin. He simply lifts it up as exhibit A that shows the heart of all of us of how idolatry causes you to twist God's original design and try to use it in your own way. Children are good but I'm going to build my life around them and make it my reason for living. Oh, work is good, but I'm going to throw myself into it and my whole identity. Sex is good. Sexuality is good, but I'm going to use it however I want. That's what he intended to do. Here you go. Consider this. They exchanged the natural use of the woman and turned towards men with men and women with women. Because if you see the passage, he goes on then in verses 28 to 32 and just ticks off a huge list of sins. That's how he wraps up that thought. That all of us are guilty of, He never intended to cause you to think, "Oh, homosexuals are the worst sinners." The church has made a huge mistake when they went down that path. I think we're doing better, but real damage was done, and has hurt us in reaching these sinners that are sinners just like us. Because we have that same heart. That exchanges the glory of God for something in this created world. That exchanges the truth of God for, and I think it's interesting, it says the truth of God for the lie. It doesn't say a lie. The best translations have the word the because that's how it is in the Greek. What is the lie? That I can be fully satisfied and functional and fulfilled in this world without God can take something else in this world and if i get enough of it and get it just the way i think i need it i can be autonomous and fulfilled and joyful and have purpose and that's the lie you were created to need god to know god to depend on god that's why richard keys richard keys says this oops All right, my laptop's moving forward, but the big screen's not. So just look at your notes. I think it's in your notes. Richard Key says this, At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence of God within ourselves and in the world, if we do not want to face the face of God Himself in His majesty and holiness, rather than look to the Creator and have to deal with His Lordship, we orient our lives towards the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired directions. However, since we were made to relate to God but do not want to face Him, we forever inflate Things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. That's really good. We forever inflate things. Don't you see people inflating? They make so much of certain things. Why? Because we have a heart that wants to worship, that wants to fill this with something. But Christians can be just as guilty of it, taking something good and inflating it beyond what it was intended to do for you. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We'll worship anything. 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 Here's another thing. Don't just trick, follow the trail of your time, money, infections. But let me give you this. Ask heart questions. Was it you guys that moved that slide for me? Yeah. Can you move it again? Again. There you go. Ask heart questions. Ask these questions. Am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin to get this? Am I willing? For instance. That job promotion, yeah, be a hard worker, but am I willing to work 70, 80 hours a week to be the flavor of the month and to do whatever it takes to catch my boss's or top team's eye? We live in a day that they don't just want you to work, they want it to be your entire life. And if you're not willing, you're probably gonna be passed by. More and more as Christians, folks, we're gonna have to be willing to recognize I am not where I could be in my career or this company if I was willing to sacrifice my family, my spiritual life, everything on the altar of this company. Because I'm not, I'm marginalized. I mean, we don't live in a country yet where, oh, they won't even hire you, but you're just not going to move forward like you could. But a Christian should hold the line and say, work, yes, work hard, yes, but it's not gonna be my whole world, it's not gonna be my whole life. There's more than I'm supposed to live for. If I cannot love my family, and if you're here and you have a family and kids, if I cannot shepherd my family and lead my family and be involved in a church and and cultivate a spiritual life based on what they're asking for me to do, I'm gonna have to trust God that he'll use another way to provide for us because I can't do this. I know that's hard. So am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm gonna lose it? Sometimes there's things that I have it But, oh, now I think I'm going to lose it. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, I don't worship my health when you have health. I don't worship my children when they're all doing well. Here's almost always the only way we find out. You usually don't know that you have built your world inordinately around something until it is taken or shaken. And then all of a sudden when you say, I'm struggling to get out of bed. I don't want to serve in the children's ministry anymore. I used to help with VBS. I used to go to community group. Now I don't even want to go. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to serve. I don't, uh, I just want to curl up in a ball and, ooh, that's a tip off. It probably indicates that meant more to you than it should have. So yes, you're in pain. But it's also an opportunity. So please pray for God to bring the wayward prodigal back. Please pray for God to heal you. Don't hear me saying that's wrong. But you also have an opportunity to say, oh God, help me to reorder my priorities and my worship. I just learned something about me that I didn't know before this trial hit. Am I willing to sin if I think I'm gonna lose it? Number three, do I run to it as a refuge instead of turning to God? Shopping's not a sin, But to just shop and buy things you don't need with money you don't have because it makes you in the moment just feel good is sin. It's idolatry. You're you're using that as a refuge. Eating is not a sin. But to just eat to eat because I had a bad day so eating just makes me for a moment feel better is a false refuge. I could just go right down the list, right? So all kinds of good things can become bad things when we try to turn them into God refuge kind of things. And so that's why as you try to help people, don't just tell them to stop. Help them to consider why are you going there in the first place? How are you using food? What's going on in your life? How are you using this thing? Or you won't be able to really help them. Think about this. You know, whether it's health, whether it's success, whether it's work, Chrissy Everett, was one of the top female tennis players in the 70s, 80s. I date myself, I love tennis. I played, my twin brother and I were a doubles team in high school. She was it in the 70s and 80s. I know some of you might say, who? Her career win record was, was best of any singles player in history. But as she was close to retirement, and you think about it with these sports figures, whether it's Giovanni Bernard or Mixon or whoever we got now, it is a short shelf life. If you're 37, you're close to being done. It's amazing. You know, the commentators always point out, oh, my goodness, he's 39 and still playing. Drew Brees, I watched him the other night, you know, make a record for for most passing yards. He's 39, and they're going on and on about that. That's young. But he's going to have to figure out what he's going to do next. And they struggle. Chrissy Everett said this. She said, I had no idea who I was. ...or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid... ...because so much of my life... ...had been defined... uh ...uh-oh... ...by my being a tennis champion. I was completely... ...lost. Think lost in the middle. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins... ...the applause... ...in order to have... ...an identity... Is there something, even a good thing, that's ruling your life more than God himself? Follow the trail of your time, money, and affections. Ask some diagnostic heart questions. Let me give you a third, a third way to go after this. Look for chaos. Look for chaos. If you've got confusion and you're like, what is going on? This work team just can't seem to get on the same page and we'll have a meeting to try to sort it out and we think everybody understands and then we move forward and there's confusion all over again. In the church, we'll have a meeting and try to reconcile these three families in a conflict they're having over a sippy cup in the nursery. I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. And you'll think it's all better and then we'll move forward and it's not and there's confusion. Guess what's going on? Always There's an agenda at play whether someone has stated it or not. And there's somebody or somebodies who want what they want. And as long as they want what they want, and often it goes unspoken, there will be chaos and confusion. Whenever you see a measure of chaos and confusion among human beings and you just can't seem to sort it out, note there's some heart issues. Those people themselves may not even fully understand. But this is why you've got the level of confusion that you've got. My go-to verse on this is James three sixteen. It says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Self-seeking, that's idolatry. Envy is, I want that. I've got to have that. When that exists, and that's at play, there will be confusion. Dave Pallison says it like this, and it's a phrase that's stuck with me. Cravings underlie conflicts. That's really good. Can you show that on the screen, guys? Cravings underlie conflicts. Where you have conflict, it is not enough. Our world at least understands conflict is bad. Let's do a conflict resolution workshop. And I'm not saying there's things you can't learn, but at the end of the day... If they don't address heart, you still will not see people with the skills that they need. You don't need just a few conflict resolution skills. You need to recognize that every one of us is such an idolater. And our tendency is to start to push a whole lot of me. And to bring my own agenda to the situation. That's why there's so much conflict. That's why there's so much confusion. Cravings always underlie conflicts. So let me show you what this looks like in our relationships. Paul Tripp, again, great insights as a counselor. I think this is in his instruments in the Redeemer's hand. Let me show you the stages of war that goes on in a heart and how it impacts the people around us. So here's what it looks like. I've got a desire. That's not sinful yet. It's just a desire. I've got a desire. I like to show it to my counselees like this. Open hand. I would love to have godly children that serve the Lord. That would really make me happy. Nothing wrong with that. I would love to have my boss actually recognize what I do when that project is over in that meeting to name my name. But they may not. I would love to have people in my community group or my friends recognize my needs and when I'm discouraged and just lean in intentionally without me having to say. None of these things are sinful. It's a desire. Problem... Seldom do we leave it there. We go to the next stage. It becomes a demand. Oh, but I must. I must. It's the closing of my fist around a desire so that I no longer can imagine a good life without this thing. What this means is I now enter the room, whether it's my home or the workplace or church, with a silent demand. Nobody else knows about it. I don't wear a sign saying stay 500 feet back because now I'm in an idolatrous mode You know, like you get on the back of dump trucks, that's helpful. Let's back off. We don't give each other that kind of heads up. We just shift and we head into rooms with silent demands now. And often it doesn't stay there. We convince ourselves because our world is psychobabble enough that, oh, it's a need. Oh, it's a need. If I can call it a need, what can you do? It's a need. Let me help you with needs. The Bible actually calls very few things in our lives needs, but we keep tucking so many things into that category. We say, "Oh, it's a need." If you understood who I am and my background and what I've been through, I have to have. It's a need now, and here's what happens then: if it's a need, oh, I need this, and you say you love me. Now I've got expectations. You say you're my best friend. You say you're my community group. You say you're my coworkers on this team. Well, then you would help me get this. I now have expectations. You should. You should. You should. Guess what? Everybody around you is chasing their own idols. So they're not paying attention to what you think you need, and they don't do what you think they should. Where do we go? Disappointment. Now I'm disappointed. And I don't mean that in a mild way. Oh, you didn't. So we don't just stay disappointed, we launch quickly from disappointment to punishment. And this is where I usually get them in counseling, right? People don't usually come in and say, oh, help us quickly. We got a little bump in the road here. We're not communicating as well as I wish. No, no, they wait until it's full-blown war and it's punishment. Either I'm not having sex with you anymore, I'm not doing your laundry, I'm not picking up your dry cleaning, I'm not even setting a place at the table for you. I've seen all this. I've heard all this in counseling. You start to punish. Or as simply as I, I just won't talk to you. I have this in more than one case. I'll go three days without talking to you. That's how I punish you. And I don't let you know what you've done. But you've done something. And it's, it's up to you to guess. Guess what's wrong with Bob now. Because he's not talking. It goes both ways. Men and women sometimes choose that. I will punish you somehow. And so I often show them this and have to trace back for them. Here's where you are. But let me help you recognize, how did you get there? So that we can get back to, what were you wanting? What were you wanting? And sometimes it wasn't even wrong. It wasn't sin in and of itself. But look where it took them that is sinful, Because God calls us the two great commandments love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you've built your world around something else, can you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? So now you're violating the first command. When you've built your world around someone else, can you truly love other people? Here's what happens you use other people to get what you want, and you attack them and punish them when they get in your way. And so some of all that's going on when you say, "Who? how do we improve this relationship? If you never get to, what is she wanting? What is he wanting? If you just jump in with some conflict verses and don't get angry verses and don't raise your voice and here's four rules of communication. Be honest, stay current, attack the problem, not the person. Act, don't react. That's all good stuff. I use it all. Please, please hear, I'm not discounting. But if that's all you do, you have not done enough. Heart. And the heart is not easy. So here's where I pray and I fast. And I say, God, help me to know how to help him. I, I don't know altogether what's going on. But I've got to ask good questions and I've got to listen. I've got to listen well. And I pray and say, God, help me to help them. Help me to help them. Help me to see what they're not seeing that I can't see without your help. You're the wonderful counselor. You're the mighty God. You're the everlasting Father. And There's more but I'll lead, leave you to walk your way through it because I think from this point on there's no blanks. And if you want to hear more and get more instruction on this, read the book or get online, listen to the audio messages, download the, download the study guide if you want. This is huge for helping people.